Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Our first panelist credits include Mad TV, Saturday Night Live, Dead Like Me, The OC, Heroes, and Kings. She's currently on The New Girl. Please welcome J.J. Philbin. Hi. Our next panelist also has a background on Saturday Night Live, having spent six seasons there. He then moved on to The Office before co-creating Parks and Recreation with Greg Daniels on BaseballNation.com and Twitter. He's known as Ken Tremendous. Uh, But you know him as Michael Shore. Hi. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) Now you're stuck with that voice. (laughs) Finally. Working his way up from assistant producer in features and after early work on Michael Mann's crime story, our final panelist co-created The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Yeah, that was a good show. (laughs) He then went on to create Nash Bridges and Martial Law. He was brought on as the co-showrunner of Lost, where he spent six seasons writing or co-writing a third of the episodes. Currently, he's writing and executive producing A&E's Bates Motel, showrunning the forthcoming FX series The Strain, and he has a terrific pilot called The Six Gun, uh, written by Ryan Condal in contention at NBC. Please welcome Carlton Cuse. Hello, this is a very Senate hearing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I expect you all to whisper in each other's ears. Before now now I'm nervous. I wasn't nervous, and now I'm nervous. Under advice from Mike, I can't answer that question. <laughs> uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, I want to jump right in um, and talk about this pilot and staffing season. Let's talk about pilot season first. Um, maybe starting with you, Carlton. Uh, you have Six Gun in contention. Yes. Right? Uh, which you are, will be executive producer of, if it goes. Yes. Uh, and you're currently working on Bates Motel and The Strain. Yes. And The Strain is... I only ask yes or no questions. <laughs> and The Strain is uh, in production as well? Uh, the Strain is going to start production in Toronto in August. Okay, but you've assembled a room and like, yeah, we have been a, up we and have running for a while. Yeah, we have a writer's room and we're, we're in the middle of... We're writing all 12 episodes okay. um, ahead of the shooting of the pilot. Okay, let's talk for a second about uh, Six Gun, because I loved it so much. Um, And I told you I brought Ryan in because I loved it so much, I emailed him immediately and was like, just come in and talk to me for an hour (laughs) about this thing. Um, But how did you get involved with this? 
How early on, and what is your involvement when you're kind of shepherding a project in this way and not necessarily writing it? Um, you know, about a, uh, a, maybe a year and a half ago, I sat down with the guys from Oni Press and we're just talking about, like, they had a bunch of titles and they asked me if there were any that I was interested in and the Six Gun was the one that's, that stood out and I just, I love the uh, comic and I just thought it would make a great TV series and so we started developing it, and it just it was a long process. We had various writers kind of come and go from for a variety of circumstances, and then eventually uh, we found Ryan Condal, who is a terrific writer and is you know one of those guys who's written a bunch of features but has yet to get anything made, and in fact you know has has been really really close on a number of projects, things that even had gotten started casting and then had had been canceled. So. This was really exciting to sort of watch this through his eyes because it was the first thing of his that actually got made. And he, he didn't really believe it until like the last day of production that it was actually not going to get canceled. It's like, no, it's shot now. It's, we're, it's done. And um, so basically, you know, we worked together very closely on the development of the script. Um, and um, it was fun to collaborate with him. And, what? you know, we kicked around a bunch of ideas. He, you know, he did... Uh, the vast majority of the writing. and uh, What does that mean from your point of view when you, know, you two are sitting in a room writing and you know you're not going to be scripting it necessarily? Do you treat it as like a, a showrunner situation? It's, it's kind of like a writer's room of two. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. We just sit down and say, okay, here's the... So we sort of looked at the, at the, at the graphic novel and of which there will ultimately be about 50 issues and we thought the fir- I, I thought the first six would be the first season of the show and sort of saying, okay, here are the main characters. Here's what we can do for the pilot. And here, you know, we sort of batted back and forth what the ideas were that we should put in the pilot and how we would expand the characters. And we just, we just broke the pilot story in the same way we would if we were working in a, in a writer's room. And, um, and Ryan did a great job writing it. Yeah. Um, and do you recall what it was that you responded to uh, when you first had that talk with Oni? You know, basically, I had done um, my, the first show I, I created was The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which was a cross genre western, which was sort of western and science fiction. And, you know, I, I loved the show, and, for, and it was canceled. It was on Fridays at 7 o'clock, which was really a death spl- spot. And, um, you know, I really, it was one of those shows which I never felt like I got to do everything I wanted to do with it. And I was really f- sort of, so there was certain latent frustration. So the idea of a cross genre western coming along. And, you know, good guys and bad guys chasing around the Old West and trying to get their hands on six guns of unworldly mythical, you know, with un- unworldly mythical powers. I mean, that's awesome. Like, why would I not want to do that? Like, so that was, it was just, I just love this. I love the story. And I just thought that was a cool premise to sort of take a, you know, kind of one part Quentin Tarantino, one part Sergio Leone Western, one part um, Harry Potter, you know. <laughs> And that was sort of the, the kind of the idea behind it. Um, and before we move on, just talk to me briefly about um, this collaboration with Ryan and you're collaborating with Carrie Aaron on Bates Motel. I mean, you've had a lot of collabor- different collaborators and of different types. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, how was this, this one with Ryan different as opposed to how you work with Carrie on Bates Motel? Um, you know, I, first of all, I just think that collaboration is the, the best part of television and that... It is a collaborative artistic medium, and I think people who are successful in television are good collaborators. And 
I, I believe that if you collaborate well, you get something that's better than the sum of the parts. And, you know, each one's a little bit different. You know, Ryan, um, you know, Ryan is really steeped in, he, he knows comics, he knows fantasy literature. He's, I, I mean, it's hard to actually tangibly say what it is specifically. I mean, he's, he's kind of a guy's guy and a, and a real action, successful action writer. And he's just, you know, Carrie Aaron is, you know, comes off Friday Night Lights. She's very character-oriented, very in, in, intuitive, very kind of emotionally centered and and um, sensitive. And you know, I, I mean, it's just each each person. It's just like friendships. It's like you know, you. Uh, it's hard to to tangibly quantify what makes one person friends with you and someone else be friends, and they may not be the same type of people, but well, it works. I, I wonder maybe about the flip side of that. Then, what do you think you're bringing to the table with each of these collaborators? Nothing. um i you know i it's different in each circumstance i mean i i think i have you know i think i have a good story brain and so i you know that's that's one thing which and i i think that some writers i i feel like as a writer i work better when i can bounce ideas i like doing that as opposed to sitting alone you know staring at a blinking cursor so for me the creative process gets activated when I have someone to bounce ideas off of. So whether it's a room full of writers or one other writer, that works better for me creatively than just sitting alone, staring. And it's not that it's not that fun. Like I just don't. I'm not. I'm not a, a good solitary writer. So I have created a life for me for myself where, you know, I can do what I think is my best work in collaboration with others. <laughs> uh, Mike, tell us about your pilot. Uh, which, again, my favorite comedy uh, pilot this year. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. I'm sticking to that voice. I am. Uh, yeah, I wrote a... I, my Dan Gore, who has been the number two guy mm-hmm. on Parks and Rec from the beginning, and I wrote a, a still untitled uh, police officer <laughs> comedy. It kind of have a title. It kind of has a title. Here's the title. Tell me what you guys Let's think. Let's try it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Wacky Fun Time Gang. <laughs> No, uh, it's the, it takes place in the uh, the fictional 99th precinct in New York in the in Brooklyn, and the current title is Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is how the cops would refer to it. No, yes, you didn't get. Would a you watch that? We should, we should just pitch titles. That'd be great. Honestly, open it up. Uh, I, I, Sirens here's the thing, from like, Mike Shore coming this fall on Fox. <laughs> We'd have to recut it significantly to make that work, but. Uh, I think that titles are kind of, in rare cases, like, like Cheers is like the greatest title ever. But in, but in most other cases, like a title doesn't become a thing until the show. The show makes the title, I kind of think. I, I think it's different in movies. I think like a really awesome title can open them. Can people go like, I'll see The Hangover. You know, like I, they just will see it. But I, I, think that, I think it goes a little bit the other way. I don't think that like modern... Almost fi- 100 coming from Mike Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep it going, man. We're not settled yet. You know all the help we can get. So. Um, anyway. So tell us where this, uh, where this pilot anymore. came from. Uh, uh, when did you and Dan start talking about it? We started talking about it, uh, I guess, more than a year ago. He, Dan is a, is an extremely capable and, and um, smart human being who was chomping at the bit to have his own show, which he more than deserves. So we started... I've known him for 20 years. We went to college together. So we started talking about it a long time ago, and then... Uh, we just we were 
like just searching for fun worlds that we could make. We wanted to do like an office, a, a um, workplace comedy, and then we sort of thought like, well, cops are fun. I mean, it was there's very little thought went into this. <laughs> no, I, no, it's getting no, TV shows easy. <laughs> yeah, cops. You know, you know that's good. And then we kind of wrote something, and then you know whatever. Uh, no, we we but worked I on it. You kept saying like, how come? Why is no one doing this? Like, is there yes. something that I'm right. not? That's that my wife, by the way. That's how she knows stuff about. I'm psychic. She's not psychic. Yeah, no, we we <laughs> we uh, we really like we we suddenly realized that no one had successfully at least done a cop comedy since like Barney Miller, which was in the late 1930s, and we were sort of like, let's give that a shot. And then we and then what happened was we came up with the idea, we came up with the pitch. And then Sandberg, Andy Sandberg, uh, is, I've, it f- was leaving SNL, and and it was kind of like, well, that he fit not one hundred percent, but like ninety two percent fit the description of the character we were talking about, and it sort of seemed like kismet. So, um, so we went into his house and pitched him the show, and he liked it, and um, and uh, we we wrote we rewrote it a little because the character was maybe originally a little more like, kind of like. Um, Hard bitten or something, not really, but a little bit. And Samberg is a goofball, so we rewrote it a little bit to fit him. Um, but and then, this, but the story was there from the story has remained the same. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it was really the same story. I mean, in its original, the, the basic story, it's a pretty simple pilot story. It's a precinct in New York, and the captain of the precinct is retired, and the new captain comes in, and it's Andre Brower. Uh, and the basic idea of the show is Andy Samberg is a goofball and Andre Brower is not. And um, originally, the original, original version was flipped. It was that, the, the, that Samberg's character uh, was, going, was moving into a new precinct with an Andre Brower-like person there already. And then we, we switched it because we wanted it to be... It, it, it seemed more fun to have the, um, the goofball be the guy who felt at home and, um, and like safe on his own turf. And then, and then Andre Brower walks in, and that ends. Um, but yeah, so we, we finished shooting it. We, we just locked it on Friday, and we're, like everybody else, we're just going to wait and see what happens. It, I, I did have one question about this uh, specifically, although it probably applies to Parks and Rec also in writing that pilot. Uh, finding the stakes in a pilot like this can be very difficult. I mean, even in a cop comedy, uh, because it has to be a comedy. How did you guys work that out? Well, there's sort of there's different kinds of stakes. I would say. There, I mean, the fun part about doing a, a show set in a police precinct is like the the co- the stakes on what we call the cover story, which is like the sort of basic plot, uh, are inherently full of stakes. Like someone killed someone, and you have to find that person. <laughs> like that's that's pretty good, you know, um, <laughs> for stakes. But uh, but you know, then and then there's the sort of emotional side of things, and um, and that, you know, that gets into sort of deeper character background. And it's stuff that, like, the hardest thing, I don't know how you feel about this, but to me the hardest thing about writing a pilot is that you have 21 minutes in a half hour. And what happened on, like, on Parks and Rec, what happened was we read the reviews of the pilot, and it was like, well, Aziz's character wasn't really explored, and, and it's kind of two-dimensional. And was, he was on screen for two minutes and eight seconds. Like, you can't yeah. go deep into people's lives and explain exactly who they are in 21 minutes. And so, you know, we, you try to... That's why I think the best 
pilots are long on character and short on plot, frankly. It's because the, the, you're trying to just get people as familiar with, as with your characters as they possibly can get. And even then, you're just screwed. Like, there's no way... There's no way that people can like emotionally latch on to characters in 21 or 42 minutes. It just is impossible. So it's like you, it's a little like you create a world and you throw some interesting people in there and you try to cast it well and you just hope that there's enough to keep people coming back. Or in the case of Lost, you make like a $15 million pilot that's two hours long and it blows people's minds. <laughs> and you get the entire nation addicted to your show instantly, literally with the first shot of a guy's eyeball on a deserted island. And then you're pretty much home free for seven years. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the other way to go. And this is this really, I mean, you know, it, it's funny, but it, it, this really is the difference between a drama and a pilot. A drama and a comedy, uh, especially in a pilot, uh, but even once a show goes to series, and JJ, I think you can speak to this a little bit, where in comedies, you know, they're just about these people hanging out together. Yeah. So much of the premise disappears, and we actually, we talked to Liz about this a little bit, where, you know, it was, the premise was just the hook that you guys quickly abandoned on the new girl. Right, right. Um, but tell me a little bit about, you know, once you're ensconced in the series... Uh, spinning out story yeah. uh, and balancing, you know, characters hanging out versus, you know, heavy plot. I mean, I think it becomes their relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we try sometimes to be like, okay, Jess, you know, Jess had a really hard day teaching. And we're all like, <sighs> you know, just, <laughs> it's just, we, we, we find that like the juicy stuff really comes from them, you know, what, what is it like uh, in that loft late at night and who, you know, who's bumping up with who? And obviously, you know, the romantic angle mm -hmm. of um, Nick and Jess was something that we were slowly building towards uh, because, you know, we, we don't have someone getting murdered in New Girl, <laughs> so Yet. we wish we did sometimes. But um, but it's it it is just people hanging out, and so I think sometimes we're always trying to find the balance of like absurd stories where like uh, they're gonna have a three way with their landlord, and th that's that's crazy. And then we're like, oh, but we do need it needs to be you know more important than that needs to have more stakes than that so then sometimes we err on the too serious side where you know we'll be breaking stories that you know we don't end up doing but it'll be like you know Jess is really you know agonizing over her relationship with her grandma and then we're like oh I'm depressed and so you know we're going back and forth and back and forth and just trying to find that sweet spot and sometimes we do and you know sometimes we're close but um, yeah I think that's, that is the challenge I mean that's the, the stuff that I always want to write about but I do find that you know 40 episodes in you have to keep like spinning these characters into different situations and to push them to change because otherwise you know you'll be recycling stories so the, the good part is that you know I think that our characters have grown so in season 2 we got to do you know Schmidt after a relationship with Cece was a different guy. So we got to do different stories about him um, than we would have in season one where he was kind of more of a straight-up douchebag. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think they just have to keep on, like, evolving, and then we just, you know, throw things in their path, and most of the time it's each other. So. And, yeah. and, and am I wrong to say that a lot of the story is generated from actual experiences the writers in the room have had? Yeah, I mean, we, a lot of times, yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot in the beginning of the year, like, we, we share a lot of dating stories, and, like, people will, like, you know, confess some pretty embarrassing stuff, and it will find its like way into... Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
is, I, I will ask this. Is there stuff of yours that has wound up in There was uh, a the story show? that was kind of about me, right? There oh, like a, a B story. story. About you. Yeah, a yeah. really small one. Which is that I'm, ter- I'm terrified of getting my hair cut. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. Like, no, it's, it's, it's a, a it's real like thing. It's like a thing. Like, I... I He's scared of the it, small talk. It looks talk really with good from the back. Thank you. <laughs> He's scared of the small talk with the barber. I'm ve- specifically, want to talk yes. I'm a, what I'm afraid of is a barber trying to talk to me and not being able to hear the barber because like clipping is happening and like loud music and stuff. And I'm it. It actually scares me. And I have I've stopped going to many barbers because they want to talk too much. Like my, uh, like I, I have this Russian woman barber, and you can't understand anything she's saying. Where? So Where? She's like, I'll go. I'll fantastic. literally go tomorrow. Okay. I swear to God. I and so I've changed. I don't. I rarely go to the same barber twice because once they like talk in a certain way, I just can't. I can't take it anymore. So that suddenly, like, I was. We were literally watching New Girl one night, and I was, and like Jake Johnson's character was like, I don't want to go to the barber, and I was like, What the fuck, man? <laughs> I, <laughs> you you didn't tell him. No, I, I think I think no, I, I think you had brought up that it was pi- that you pitched it. Yeah, I mean, again, getting back to sort of what what obstacles do you come up with? You know, when it's just four people hanging out in a loft, and you know, a well that we go to often are people's neuroses and and fears, and so. Uh, I was sharing in the writer's room. I was like, my husband's like pretty like chill, not not scared of much, but like shape before haircut will be shaking, you know, just like he's like, we're sports. What are we going to talk about? I'm, like, I'm not ashamed of this, by the way. I am not embarrassed by this. I'm fine with all of you laughing at me because I'm very comfortable with this particular neurosis. I, it's very it's very real and it does affect my life but I'm fine with it and I don't and like if I can go to this Russian it's lady it's also because she she talks but I have no idea what the fuck she's saying and they just nod so and wait it's let totally, me, this, totally is good. A, this is important though let me ask you do you try to respond or do you just sit there silently no I just kind of say oh yeah uh-huh, see even yeah. that even that is too much okay yeah yeah I don't even want to do that okay but if I could maybe, I don't know, if, maybe I'll try her. I'm okay. not kidding. I would like to get her name from you. <laughs> but if he finds a guy who doesn't scare him, he'll go, like, all the way across town. And I, would, I would drive to, like, Cerritos to get my hair cut <laughs> if there were a barber in Cerritos who didn't talk to me. And, like, if, if the barber said at the beginning, like, I'm not going to talk to you at all, that would, that would be great. Like, if he, if he or she told me, like, this is going to be a silent experience, that uh, would be that's <laughs> ideal. I've t- talked way too much about this. We should move on. So. This is actually something that I'm curious about from all of you guys, and it's something we, we kind of touch on once in a while in here. Um, and, JJ, you can probably speak to it and already have a little mm-hmm. bit. But this idea of getting your voice into a show uh, where you are either not the showrunner or, you know, you're, you're one of many voices in a show, yeah. which, you know, that's pretty much all anyone is. Um, have you been successful in this? You know, besides getting the story in, is there something that shows your point of view? That's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I think that, like, the episodes that I have written on the show tend to have their own flavor, and that's true of every writer on our staff. But, um, uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, sometimes you'll pitch a story that is is more in your wheelhouse. Like, I'm definitely more of the... Um, emotional, you know, romantic, like Nick and Jess angst writer than like, you know, some of our our joke writers. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning with New Girl, like we wrote drafts and they would and we would give them to Liz and they would kind of go in 
to the Liz machine. Um, but as time has passed, it's become much more of a collaborative experience. And the show is like, you know, a combination of all these different voices. And that's when, when an episode's really working, I can kind of see, you know, all of us in it. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of an intangible thing, I think. Um, it might be a story or it might be um, an attitude or, or, you know, the way someone deals with something. You know, Nick going to a park bench and talking to, um, you know, this silent Thai man is so one of our writers, you know. My John's ideal barber, that guy. <laughs> Just realized that. But anyway, that's, that is like, you know, emblematic of one of our writers and that's just very him. And so like, that's an ingredient. And so we, we have this sort of pot of, 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 you know, attitudes and, and kind of different comedic sort of ways to go. And we just kind of throw them together and sort of, I, I can't describe it, but. But that, that comes very close. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, Carlton, the same question, you know, on any of these shows that you worked on, I'm, I'm curious specifically about something like Bates Motel or, and Lost. You know, what is the stuff that comes from you? Where is your voice in these shows or your interest or your point of view? Well, in the, case, in the case of Bates Motel, it's basically half my voice and half Carrie Aaron's because it was kind of a writing staff of two. We wrote... Oh, really? the whole season of the show. Well, we had a writer named Jeff Wadlow at the beginning, and then he left to go direct Kick-Ass 2. Um, so he was around for um, briefly, and then he um, got this movie gig, which was fantastic. And then um, then we had we had a couple writers later in the season, and then and, and one was pregnant, and she went off and had a baby, and another one didn't work out as well as we'd hoped. So we really, the two of us together, just kind of did pretty much all of the writing on that. Um, you know, I think that when you watch it, I think a lot of the sort of, you know, twists and turns and, you know, surprises is, is more my stuff and um, and the more maybe the suspense side of the show and then and a lot of the wonderful nuanced character writing is Carrie's. But I think there's this thing happens when you collaborate that you get something that's kind of a third quality that comes from, you know, working together on um, putting stories together. And I, I, I think that that is reflected in the show that it's that it is actually somehow better than I think the sum of the parts. You know, in the case of Lost, there were certainly writers, most notably um, Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, who really were they had you know they were sort of insistent in in kind of the best possible way in the writers' room about certain things that they were interested in, particularly like Hurley and and some of the funny stuff in the show and. And Eddie particularly was obsessed with a lot of the, the sort of minor characters in the show and just would keep pitching stuff. And I think it's – in the writer's room, it can be a lot like if you have a kid who keeps wanting a toy and keeps asking you over and over for that toy. Eventually, you get them that toy that <laughs> if an idea is pitched repeatedly in the writer's room, eventually you're like, yes, that's, we should do that, you know? And um, – and uh, but Eddie and Adam, you know, I think so. I think as a writer in a writer's room, if you, it is good to have a point of view. And I work hard when staffing shows to try to assemble writers that bring different things. You don't want to have writers that all kind of are coming at the show from the same point of view. And if you can get a, a, a sort of a multiplicity of voices, it really helps you. You get better ideas. You get more interesting stuff. I mean, I have one tiny slice of experience and. You know, having all these other writers who bring in their experience is just a huge part of what makes, you know, a show sustainable and seem interesting. You know, I think you can, there, I, I won't name shows, but there are certain shows that are written a lot by certain writers and, and they become, I think, 
yes, there is a sort of singular vision, but I think there also can sometimes be a certain repetitiveness to that. And I think, you know, the, the writer's room gives you a chance to sort of expand the world that the, that the show is about. Outside of Bates Motel, do you generally like a bigger room to get more of those voices in? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it just, it just kind of worked out more circumstantially because we had a lot of time before we started shooting, so we had time to write and not be doing a lot of other things at the time when we were writing the scripts. Um, you know, I think too big a room... I mean, comedy and drama are very different. I mean, to me, I think uh, a room somewhere between... You know, six and ten people is good. And more than that, then there's just too many people trying to contribute and it actually goes slower. Um, you know, in comedies, I think you probably have more writers because you, you know, you're, you're, well, the problem, com- I would say the problem in comedy is if you get more, much more than like ten people, then there's this weird, like, Everyone has this sense of like, oh, I don't have to really do anything because there's so many people here. <laughs> like someone yeah. else will do something, you know. So like, That's you can funny. see like, it, like yeah. if there's like 12 people in a room, like five of them are kind of like tweeting, kind of on their phone. You know, like New Girl has like 16 writers, like 17 writers. 17, but yeah. do you guys all sit in the room all at the same you time? No, we did in in pre-production. Uh, our, our writing staff um, ballooned in season two, and in pre-production, we you know we're jammed in. Like people were like you know hanging <laughs> off the windows and. Yeah. And it would. It, first of all, it was disgusting in there. Like the room was <laughs> tiny, and people smell. It was just. It was terrible. Like our food and all the bodies. So it, it, you know, and there was just we. It was really hard to get a rhythm going. So as as the year wore on, we started dividing up into two or three rooms, and we would have a story room. Sometimes we'd have two story rooms, an A story room, and a B story room. And there's always a joke room at New Girl. Like at all hours of all days, there's like at least five people punching, punching, punching. And sometimes the story rooms are kind of funneling their stuff straight into the joke room. Um, so, I, yeah, this 17 people I was, uh, you weren't getting the best of everybody probably, but in a room of five or six, I found for our show that that is... That's sort of uh, everyone is yeah. responsible and has to work. And, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Uh, and New Girl is also a pretty young room, isn't it? it yeah, it feels that way to me. I mean... <laughs> well, so this is what Liz and Dave and Brett said also. It was, it, it was a lot of baby writers. Yeah, we have a lot, uh, a lot of um, people just starting out. Um, and it, I didn't know I was old until I got to the New Girl writer's room. And, <laughs> and I was sort of hearing people's dating stories. And I was like, oh, I've been out of it for a long time. Man, on Facebook. Um, what? What? <laughs> um, and... Mike, I, th- I feel like you can speak to this, too, because I think The Office was a very young room uh, when you started there. Yeah, season one was... Um, uh, I had been on SNL for six years, mm-hmm. and Mindy had like done a two-person show in New York, <laughs> and BJ had like written, I think, for very briefly for, um, for the Step Bob Saget show. That's right. And then um, <clears throat> there were consultants, Paul Lieberstein, who had been in King of the Hill, and... Uh, and Larry Wilmore, who uh, had created Bernie Mac show, he was he was other than Greg, he was by far the most experienced. And then uh, Lester Lewis, the late lamented Lester Lewis, um, uh, who had done a million things. I think he had worked on Bernie Mac with Larry too. But the the only full time writers were me, Mindy, and BJ, and we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And it and like then the next year, like. Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stupnitsky were the uh, were hired and they had never done anything and um, yeah there was a lot of which I thought it was great though I loved it that way because I didn't we all felt like we were I mean Greg Daniels is this sort of like very um, Yoda like kind of mysterious figure and he uh, he sort of like 
very nicely. I mean, there's he had obviously something to gain from it, but he very nicely kind of like led a kind of unofficial tutorial in writing for that whole first season. Like we, he, he really like explained how because none of us knew we really had no idea i mean i didn't know like i had never used final draft like we had to know we had like this old microsoft word template that was really crappy um this is going to be my question i mean this must have been a crash course for you uh because you had really only written sketch until this point right yeah yeah i had written sketches and and a curb your enthusiasm spec that got me hired and and there was a there was a time when like we we wrote seven scripts that first year to shoot six episodes um, or six to write six scripts to do five because he had written the pilot and we only had a six episode order and there was a moment like we were trying to break like the fourth story and it was just Greg and me and Mindy and BJ and maybe Paul in a room and Greg just started talking about like what makes a good story and I slowly realized that he had stopped even caring about the story that we were trying to break and was literally just like talking about writing in this incredible kind of abstract um, but concrete way. And I just, I literally like flipped the page in the notebook I had to jot down ideas and just started like transcribing what he was saying as fast as I could. And it's a, it's like that, it's like a two page thing that I still have. And I still look at to like remind myself like how to write. Yeah. I I mean, and I don't know if Greg knows that it wasn't like he was, he wasn't like trying to, he wasn't like trying to suddenly become a professor. He just is that kind of person in the best possible way. And so I literally still have this two pages of my scrawled notes of just like stakes, motivation, twists and turns, escalation, like emotional stories, cover stories, like all that stuff, which is exactly the playbook that we run at Parks and Rec and which I'll run for the rest of my life as long as I'm a writer. So That's amazing. Um, what was the first episode that you were credited with writing, or what was the first thing that you actually wrote yourself on this on the on show? the on the office? Yeah, the first episode I wrote was called The Alliance. Um, it was in the first season. It was an episode where Dwight is scared that he is going to get downsized, and Jim seizes upon that to form an alliance with him, and like just just screw with him for the whole episode. Um, and Do you remember how it came together? Yeah, Survivor was huge at the time. Um, and someone, it might have been BJ Novak, pitched a sort of, sort of like Survivor. The gym would ask Dwight to like create a sort of Survivor-like alliance with him. I think that's what, how it came about. And then the story was, I mean, th- those first six episodes of The Office, if you, if you made a document of all of the script pages that we wrote and threw away, it, they, they'd probably be 300 pages long. I mean, we wrote and threw away so much stuff to try to figure out what the show was. Um, but that was the first one, I think, yeah. But, like, it was all, it was super collaborative. I mean, talk about collaborative. That was, like, the first season, in fact, the first two seasons of The Office was someone's name would appear on an episode and it would be, like, a joke. Like, that person had yeah. no more to do with that episode. And Greg was very good about it. Like, he never, Greg could have very easily claimed all or partial writing credit for, like, 41 of the first 50 episodes of that show and he and he didn't because he thought it was like important to build our confidence which he did um but it was super collaborative in the best possible way it was a lot of like a lot of like people like baby writers figuring out together how to make sense of all this that's great 
Um, that question of the showrunner's role and how much he or she should have his or her name on things is an interesting one, and it comes up occasionally here. Uh, Carlton, do you want to speak to that at all? You've, you've run a couple of shows. You've created a number of shows. I mean, I feel very strongly that as a showrunner, you should not jump a writer's credit. I never have. And, um, you know, even if I do a page one rewrite of someone else's script, I don't put my name on it. You yeah. know, I just don't believe that you should do that. I think that it's demoralizing and that that's part of your job description. And I think that, you know, if you want to make... My goal is, is that if you, you know, if you work on one of my shows, er, everyone should feel invested in all the material. And you know, it sh- it's not about the episode that your name is on. It's about the and, – and if you should take pride in the kind of collective success of the entirety of the enterprise, not your particular script. And I think by jumping credit, I think you kind of destroy the entire morale and the, and the kind of collaborative basis that makes for a good team. And so – I just don't, I don't believe in doing it and I don't do it. I mean, you know, yes, I, I rewrite, but, um, you know, always, um, that, that writer will always retain credit. Correct answer. Um, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of staffing on your shows, um, yeah. you had just put together a room and you're, you're probably about to put together another one. Tell me about reading material and taking those meetings for putting together the staff. Um, you know, I, I, I always read original material. I just don't understand this idea that agents tell people to write specs of other shows. I mean, I know there's many lost specs. I've never read a lost spec. I wasn't allowed to read any lost specs. Um, I, 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 over the course of my career, I've hired writers who've written specs of other shows, and those have been writers who haven't worked out. I tried to... Really? Yeah, and I, I really... By reading something original, I get a much better sense of what that person's voice is like, what their interests are like, and... It's just really kind of a simply about sort of emotionally moving me. You know, if I read a script and I get locked into it and I feel emotionally connected to it, that, you know, I, I mean, I consider myself to be a pretty good picker of writers. I've given a lot of people their first jobs, you know, Damon, Sean Ryan, Glenn Mazzara, um, you know, uh, Janet Tomorrow, who does um, Rizzoli and Isles. I gave Pam Vise her first drama job. She's got a, she does one of the CSI shows, um, you know, and, and uh, among others. And, um, I just, you know, I, I kind of look for something singular in that, in that script and that it's, it's a hard thing to explain other than just, you know, make me feel something when I read your script, you know, that's really what it is. And then, you know, again, try to assemble a different group of people. So for instance, on the strain, you know, we have a fairly experienced group of people, but they're, they have kind of come from a variety of backgrounds. Um, I've got this uh, team, Weddell and Thompson, who were the number twos on Battlestar for the entire run, um, Regina Carrado, who came off of Deadwood, Jenny Hutchinson, who comes off of Breaking Bad, um, Chuck Hogan, who wrote the original books based this, that the strains. Uh, he co-authored the three strain books with Guillermo del Toro. He also wrote the book that was the basis for the movie The Town. So he's has, having his first staff experience going from being a novelist to being a television writer, which is kind of great. And, um, and then... Uh, a young writer named Justin Britt Gibson who's a, a feature writer. So, um, and it's a really good combination of people from different backgrounds and different, everybody's kind of bring something a little bit different to the, to the table. That's great. Uh, Mike, same question. You know, tell me about putting together the room for Parks and Rec and for this pilot when it goes. I uh, completely agree that original material is easier to judge. I think that sometimes when you read a spec script of another show, it's hard to tell whether it's a really good writer or a really good mimic of a show's style. And there is, we just are, I think, probably ending 
like a seven year run where every comedy writer had a 30 Rock spec script. And 30 Rock, one of my favorite shows of all time, never miss an episode. Every spec script is funny because you're writing jokes for Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey. And if you are a fan of that show and you've like observed it, you can write funny jokes for. I mean, Jack Donaghy was like a like a once in a generation joke, the delivery mechanism. And I would read spec scripts and and enjoy them. I think like this seems really good. And it was impossible to tell whether the person was funny or the person was a good mimic and was had at his or her disposal a lot of great characters. So I only I do the same thing. I only read um, original material if I possibly can. And all of the most like I, I read a spec script by or a um, pilot by Katie Dippold, this woman who uh, I knew her manager, and he said, "Hey, look at this." And it was like this really poorly typed document that was barely like the the margins were all screwed up, and it looked like it had, the paper had been misaligned in the printer, <laughs> and it didn't have a title on it, or a it didn't have. A, it like had no. There was no information. It was a terrible, terrible sample. There was no way to tell who had written it. Like if you found it on the street, you'd be like, "This is garbage. I'll throw this away." So, but I, I, I it came to me through this guy I know, and and I started reading it, and I literally wrote on the top of the second page, "Hire her." Like it was immediately evident after one page that this was a really awesome writer who had a great brain. And who had created something great, and she wrote that movie. She left our show to write that movie, The Heat, that's coming out in like a month with Sandra Bullock and and um, yeah, Melissa, Melissa McCarthy. McCarthy. And that's too bad. That would have been a good title for your show. <laughs> <laughs> really would have. God damn it. So the so and and you know that's just one example. But I it was so much more. It was so much easier for me to tell based on that original material, that she was a great writer, which she obviously is, uh, than if she had written a 30 Rock spec. So I, I, that's, that's the, totally the way I, I prefer to do things as well. And then I think, I mean... Why don't I, you call her and ask her for a title for your show? <laughs> <laughs> like, wh- like, which 50 did you reject before she went with the heat? I'll take one of your sloppy seconds. Um, she, but uh, yes, I, I, I found myself agreeing a lot with everything Carlton has said about collaboration and about putting a staff together and... I think the important thing, like the best thing on a show is when someone that you've hired to work on the show writes a joke for a character that you could never write. And when that happens, it's the best. They Like Aisha Muharu is a writer on the show, and she has a lot of sort of Leslie Nopish qualities about her. And she can write jokes for Leslie that I could never write. And it, when she does it, it makes me so happy. And like we did an episode recently where Adam Scott's character uh, had a kidney stone and had to be on morphine. And... Uh, we had a lot of funny jokes for like things that drugged up Adam Scott was saying, and then <laughs> Harris Whittles. How many of you know Harris Whittles? Yeah, there we go. Harris Whittles is a is a um, a, dr- a drug enthusiast, I'll say, and he was like he was like super. He's super like laid back dude. He's usually asleep in the room, but like we were going over the script, and he was like really agitated, and I was like, what? Is wrong with you, man? And he was like, "This just, this is not the way that people talk when they're on morphine." And I really think we need to get this right. And I was like, "Go crazy, man!" And he, he like disappeared into a room. He worked harder than I've ever seen him work. He like was like focused, and like his phone would ring, and he would go like, "No," and turn it off, and like just like pound. And uh, 
And he came back, and like every joke he wrote for Ben was better than the one that we had had. We were just sort of doing like drugged out dude, and he was like super specific about, about what people are like on morphine. And it was like, this, finally, Harris, this is the reason I hired you. <laughs> Five years later, I find it finally paid off for this morphine section. <laughs> But it, the, like the, the global thing here is that like when people are funnier than about your characters that you've created than you are, it's the best thing. It's so great. And that's true, by the way, not only of actors but of, or of writers, but of actors. Like when Chris Pratt improvises something that I could never write, which happens like every week, it's amazing. And you feel like this is, what, this is why we do this. This is collaboration at its finest. It's like the actors get to act the roles and the directors get to direct them and the writers get to write them and like everyone's brain in a pot is so much better. I think there's probably a handful of shows in the history of television that would not have been improved with more collaboration. Like I feel like we just finished watching Enlightened recently. I don't think that show could have been any better if Mike White had had a writer's room. I think that was like a thing that was in his brain that was so specific and so great and so pure that he just like wrote it and then like like did one of these blackjack dealer things and walked away. Uh, and I don't know that any other writer could have helped him in that way, but aside from the rare thing like that, I think every, every show benefits. The more collaboration there is, the better off you are. JJ, talk to us about being on the other side uh, during staffing season. And I know it's been a couple of years before since you had to pull together a spec script and make those rounds, but... Uh, take these people inside and oh. tell us how awful it is. <laughs> it's not great. Um, no, I, I, you know, I was, I was lucky. I, I came out here for staffing in 2002, 2001. Mm-hmm. And back then, peop, you know, if you wrote like a half-decent Sex in the City, like you kind of got to do the rounds and do meetings. And I think it's, it's so much harder now because... People, you know, have because there's been this push towards uh, original material, and uh, and uh, and people are, you know, have their own acts at UCB, and they've got characters, and they've got podcasts, and there's so many other ways to sort of present yourself. Um, but back then, you know, I wrote. This is going to date me, but I wrote uh, a Sex in a City and an Ed. <laughs> it's like Ed was going to go on a bad date. I mean, I don't even remember. I blocked it out. Um, <laughs> and I carted those two specs around, you know, to everyone who would read them. And uh, and I was so thrilled when I got on my first uh, show, uh, which got canceled after two episodes. It was the first thing canceled uh, that year. It was called That Was Then. And do you, do you guys remember, it was like 10 years ago where there was this like, uh, there was this trend of shows about going back in time. There was a show called, um, it was like Doing Your Life Again. There was the same show literally on a different network called Do Over. And nobody knew the difference. It was like both, both uh, shows were like guys spinning through time and like going back to high school and being like, I'm going to get the girl this time. But... You know, I was just so happy uh, to have landed on something. No, and no offense, Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> it was not lost. Um, and uh, and then that show got canceled after two episodes, and I, you know, went back out. And but I was lucky because uh, an EP I had worked with on that show um, went to uh, another show, Dead Like Me, and he brought me with him. And uh, and that show, it, you know, I, it lasted a little while, but not too long. And then I, uh, 
I kind of wanted to get back into comedy, so I got on this multicam show called uh, Coupling, and I was like, now I've got it made. This is going to be great. Um, and, um, and obviously, you know, that got canceled uh, pretty quickly. But then I landed on the OC, where I stayed, at, where I stayed for four years. And so, um, I mean, I think staffing is, is tough, but if you're lucky, and then, you know, one job can kind of morph into the next. And that was my experience for, for most of the time. And... Um, I think like a couple of years ago, I sort of said, I just, I can't do it anymore. I sort of want to develop. We you know we have kids. And uh, so I said, I just, I'm not going out for staffing. Um, and then I got an incoming call uh, with someone, an executive that I used to work with was on New Girl. Um, and uh, they said, you know, just, just come in and, and take a look. And uh, I was like, oh, I don't want to like this because I can't go back. You know, I, 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 I just wasn't sure if I was ready to sort of go back to, to the room. And um, I saw the pilot, and I was like, oh, man, I got to do this. Like, I, I have, and I, you know, promptly went into Liz Merriweather's office and was like, I'll do anything to work here. I just love this pilot. So, um, so yeah. Uh, tell me just briefly about making that jump from Dead Like Me to the multicam. Because that yeah, must have been was, crazy for you. It was weird. Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely been jumping from mm-hmm. all different types of shows. And, you know, I went from the OC to Heroes. That was, right. that was the weirdest jump <laughs> anyone's ever made. Um, but there's still, you know, there's an hour, there's a structure there. Yeah, there's yeah. I mean, and comic. I think, I think that, um, I mean, of course I was jealous of, of Mike when he got on The Office and the coupling had just... Um, been canceled at the time, so I was like, "Oh, good luck," you know. And, uh, Do you guys remember coupling? It was, it was coupling. <laughs> the funniest thing about this whole situation is that coupling was a British import that NBC was. The way NBC advertised it was, "This is Friends, love it," and people were like, "No," and then the and then it failed, and then the Office came along, and I <laughs> when the Office started, and the when it became a hit, like every article that talked about how good The Office was also talked about how coupling sucked. I had to keep reliving it again and again. It was a really, like, tense thing for us. Like, it was like, I was like, I'm not writing the articles. No, but I was just like, you know... By coupling doing everything wrong, there was like this, like it was the same people, and then they all got in a room and they were like, well, we'll never do that again. Sure, yeah, it was Ben Silverman. Ben Silverman produced both shows, and so like the the essence of the articles was like, he really, like, really screwed up with this show. (laughs) And then now, amazingly, this show is so much better. It was like, it felt personal. It felt like someone was trying to drive us apart. I was like. Yeah, I mean, the, the good news about it, though, is that I was able to wander into these different rooms that had such different writing styles. And, I mean, when I was in that multicam room, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never been in, like, a... I'd never worked for a multicam before. So, uh, you know, it's a crash course. And, and you know, even though uh, that show didn't work, there were incredibly talented writers in there. There's Danny Zucker, who is now, you know, on Modern Family. And I just, I just watched them and took notes and, um, and, you know, learned a bunch of stuff only to go on the OC where none of it applied. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll come back and talk about the OC in a minute. Carlton, I want to ask you a little bit about producing stuff, the, the stuff that kind of got you into TV and what led you there um, and how it's informed show running and creating shows since then. 
Not really a question there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I <laughs> was, I was, uh, I was working with a writer named Jeffrey Bohm, and I spent five years of my life basically doing working on the, the, the development of three movies: *Lethal Weapon 2*, *Lethal Weapon 3*, and *Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade*. And when I was, when we were working on Indy, I got a call from uh, Bob Greenblatt, who was an executive at Fox at that time, who basically said, "Hey, would you be interested in?" doing something like Indiana Jones for Fox. And so I was flying back from my um, in-law's house in Albuquerque, feeling kind of Western. And I literally on the Southwestern napkins, I came up with this idea, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. And, and it was kind of a combination. And so, you know, Indy had been based on George Lucas's love of the old serials that used to show in front of movies. And, you know, the two biggest genres were Western and science fiction. So I thought, well, what if we put those together? And, you know, so I pitched this to Bob and, and then Bob hired, um, you know, Jeffrey and I to do that. And then that, that really was what led me out of movies into television. And it was much better for me because I think kind of I'm sort of a half right brain, half left brain person. And being a showrunner, there's, there, it's hard to do both things well. It's hard to both be creative on demand and you have this incredible, you know, you have to produce this huge volume of work in a very prescribed time, within a very prescribed format of minutes. Um, but you also have to do it for a very prescribed budget, and you have to manage a couple hundred people, and you're spending millions of dollars an episode, and you have to oversee all that. And, you know, there, most people tend to be better at, at one or the other. And, um, you know, I think that it's, that's, it's what, that's the hardest thing about show running is really being able to kind of do both those things well. And, um, Did you find at this time, um, were, you, were you guys running the show? Uh, Briscoe? I was. You yeah, are. I was. And yeah, I mean, I kind of got thrown into it. I mean, it was weird. My training, I didn't kind of evolve up on a staff in a traditional fashion, but I had, when I was working at Warner Brothers, um, while I was working with uh, Jeffrey, I was also developing a couple of movies with a writer named John Sackert Young, who had created a show called, and was running a show, China Beach. And the interesting thing about China Beach was the number two guy on China Beach was John Wells, and virtually every single person on China Beach, except for John Sackett Young, the creator, went and did ER. So basically, I think, you know, there was, you wouldn't remember this probably, but at the time, there was Chicago Hope and ER came out, and there was a real debate as to which one was going to work. And ER was the was this monster smash. It was doing like a 44 share, which is like <laughs> mind-blowing. Um, but it was... It was really well executed, and the reason it was well executed was the entire writing staff, casting, the same director, Rod Holcomb. The, you know, all these people had gone from making a trauma show set in um, Vietnam in the 60s to making a trauma show set in a Chicago hospital in the late 80s, early 90s. And so that, that, that really accounted for that. But I learned sort of by osmosis hanging out with John, in his, and John was an an artist and not, he was much more on the creative side than on the practical side of showrunner. In fact, he had a skeleton on his couch that said, I'm waiting for John Young, you know, because he was always perpetually late for meetings and, you know, never, but I would hang out in his office and it'd be like four things gone. So I, so I, over the course of a couple of years, I sort of learned showrunning by osmosis because I was working on these other projects and in and around all these meetings on China Beach. So that was a big part of my my education, and then I, I just kind of got, I got thrust into it and um, kind of survived the, we did 27 episodes of Briscoe in one year, and one of the writers, in fact, we got a back, back five order, and one of the writers just burst into tears and quit. And just, <laughs> 
So it was it was just the crazy thing. And it was no small production either, especially for the time. Like it had huge production value and ambitious production. Yeah, although we were making it for very little money, and we actually shot most of it on the Warner Brothers back lot, which still had a western street in town called Laramie Street, which is where Maverick had shot, and it's not there anymore. But it was the last. Western that was shot on a studio lot in Hollywood, and wow. we had all these cool like old Wranglers who'd done all these movies, and the you know they'd be like <laughs> chewing on like cherubs and stuff, whatever you, those things are that you chew on, and they are like you know, and they were really cool, like all these people that connected back to the history of westerns when they were really popular in the fifties and sixties, and um, I mean I loved doing that show, and uh, I mean but it was really trial by fire. Well, it seemed like you must have been, like you say, somewhat hardwired for it anyway. I mean, you clearly had those managerial skills as well as the creative, the writing skills. Yeah, I mean, it just, I, I just, I kind of felt like, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. And, you know, writing movies is really hard and painful. And even working on these big franchise movies, I mean, it was two and a half years between Lethal Weapon 2 and Lethal Weapon 3. And this is like, at the time behind Batman, the most important franchise at Warner Brothers. And it still took that long to get the movie made. And, um, it just, it's, you know, as a writer, you're at the bottom of the, of like every rung in the movie business. You know, the, the director is above you, the, the actors are above you, every, you know, you're just, you just don't, you know, matter. And in television, you're the king if you're the writer or producer. And it was just, it was just so much better. And it really was just one of those things where I, I did it and I was like, oh, okay, this, this is, you know, when I came out here, I really didn't even know what a television showrunner was or how television worked. I was, you know, like everybody else, like, oh, I'll be a movie director, you know? So, <laughs> um, so it was just, it was kind of revelatory, and it's just like, oh, this is for me. That's cool. Um, Mike, talk to us a little bit about uh, figuring out Parks and Rec, about finding the show's voice. I mean, obviously, it's come together as this unbelievably uh, this comedy powerhouse we talked to Aisha, we talked to Dana Gould and Harris and they talked about how it was kind of a, a tough time figuring that out, getting to that point Yeah, I mean there, it was a, a kind of an odd situation because the original idea, Ben Silverman went to Greg Daniels and said do a new show It'll be 13, I'll give you 13 episodes and it'll uh, debut after the Super Bowl and uh, he said okay, and um then we developed the show, and we wanted to get Amy Poehler, but she was pregnant, and so we had to uh, delay, and we couldn't do 13 episodes, so we, we voluntarily cut our own order from 13 to 6 and moved the debut of the show from the Super Bowl until, like, you know, March 23rd. So it was like, at the time, it seemed like this is a, maybe the stupidest thing that you could possibly do as a TV producer, but we sort of felt like the... Getting Amy Poehler is a long-term decision, and debuting after the Super Bowl is a short-term decision, and the long-term decision is more important. So this is all a long-winded way of saying that what happened was we shot the pilot, and instead, you know, we just finished our pilots, and now if they turn into shows, we'll have several months to look at them and think about them and change things and reshoot things and tinker and figure out the characters with the help of a writing staff. But at the time... We shot our pilot, and then a week later, we shot episode two. And so we didn't get any feedback at all about anything about the show until, like, episode five was shooting or something. You hadn't even really seen it when you started. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it's true. We hadn't. We two. kind of hadn't really seen the pilot. You'd seen, like, dailies. Yeah, so it was very... Um, so what happened was, like, the we didn't get to really think about what to do to the show until it was already airing, which is not a great situation to be in. And... 
what happened was we we didn't make huge changes. We just we saw the feedback that was coming in from people and we realized where we had kind of screwed up a little bit and we owned it and we mostly what we did is we changed the way that people reacted to Leslie rather than her behavior. Um, she, the feedback we got was that she was coming off like a ditz, um, which was certainly not the intention. The intention was that she was very smart and capable, but her kind of relentless enthusiasm made it so that like she was like a, uh, a constant like thorn in people's sides in the best possible way that she was saying like, screw red tape, screw bureaucracy, let's get this stuff done. But people were rolling their eyes at her on the show and being like, ugh, you're so lame, and that is not good. <laughs> so <laughs> we, um, we just really it went from people go- rolling their eyes to saying, like, wow, that's cool that she has that uh, opinion. And suddenly everyone was like, oh, I like her now. It's amazing how that it's, – it really was not a huge thing. And then the other major thing we did was at the end of the second season, we brought in Adam Scott and Rob Lowe, which is its own you know, gigantic um, benefit to the show – so I, I, I guess the, the point of this is, like, I think the cast on our show was great before the writing was great. And they, they we, the, the problems such as they were with the show lay in the fault of the creators and the writers and that we had, we, it took us a while to figure out how to unlock their natural talents. Like, Nick Offerman has been Nick Offerman this whole time, and it took us, like as is usually the case, six or ten episodes to go like, oh, I'm Dan Gore uh, pitched this story early in season two where Ron gets a hernia. And the basic idea was, watch this. Like, Nick Offerman is going to sit in a goddamn chair for an entire episode and be hilarious, and that's exactly what he did. <laughs> and, that, and then in that episode, the, it ended with the, Aubrey Plaza's character, April, comes to him, at the, figures out that he's hurt and that he's being stubborn and refusing to go to the doctor, and she comes to him and says all right, I've got my dad's car, are you ready? And the line in the script was, I was born ready, I'm Ron Swanson. And in, while we were shooting the scene on the last take, for whatever reason, he said, I was, she said, are you ready? And he said, I was born ready, I'm Ron fucking Swanson. <laughs> and that's way funnier. So it was like, and, and that just came out of like, oh, he's figuring out how to do it, and we're figuring out how to do it. And it was the best story we had come up with that character for, in a, to that point, and it was the best he the funniest he was doing it. And it's just like anything else. It's like practice makes perfect. And at some point, it's uh, all of these, all of the like changes or like alterations you do to a show is just people like doing it over and over and again. It's a very organic thing. You really learn to listen to your show and your show kind of tells you what it wants to be, you know, and you can kind of impose your will on it, but only to a certain degree. And then you really have to kind of listen to what what the show is telling you it wants to be. And you know, it's funny because when you do pilots and stuff, the network always asks you to generate this document. Well, this is what the first season of the show is going to be. And it's complete <laughs> bullshit because you, you know, the show evolves and you spend that entire first season figuring out what's the paradigm that makes the show work. And um, the document is just a sell job, basically. Um, the one for Lost is very funny. Um, but um, <laughs> what does the one for loss look like? I, I actually, Damon. Uh, under advice of Mike, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to take the fifth. Uh, it seems like it's also another instance of learning how to work with new collaborators. You know, the actors are yeah, as much collaborators. Abso- as yeah, absolutely. Else. And you know, and it's the finding the thing with actors. I mean, sort of famously. You know, we hired Michael Emerson on Lost to do a three-episode arc. We had this, Damon and I had this idea that we would have this guy, this prisoner of war, basically, we're going to capture and hold him in the hatch, and then we'd let him go, and we would learn, oh, the guy was the leader of the others. And 
you know, we thought, well, well, we'll make this guy the leader of the others, but if the actor sucks, he'll just be like another that we caught and we'll never see him again. And then Michael Emerson came on the show and uh, he was so amazing. Did not suck. That instead of doing three episodes, we just kept him held down there for eight episodes then made him a series regular. This is a thing that, like, I think... Uh in this modern world we live in where there are podcasts and 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 blogs and there's so much like media coverage this is this is a problem because you had I grew up having no idea how much of this stuff is happy accidents and now yeah. everyone knows like Jonathan Banks's character on Breaking Bad only existed because Odin Kirk wasn't available to shoot the episode where they clean up after um Aaron Paul's girlfriend when she overdoses and so they were like, oh, we'll just get a different guy. And then that guy is amazing, and yeah. he's so good, and he's so integral to the rest of the show. And they had no idea. And like you, yeah. now that stuff, you, when you were growing, when I was growing up, everything seemed like there was a gigantic collective omniscient brain that was like just moving pieces around the chessboard. But like every show, it's like a complete accident when most of the time, especially in like seasons two, three, four, when like a new character comes in and like it like your show was like the number one example of this because when there was so much scrutiny about that show that when characters didn't work or certain things in their personal lives would occur on the island of Hawaii yeah. and then they would meet their Maybe. tragic end 6 weeks later <laughs> like everyone knew and like in the like before the internet no one would have had any idea that any of that stuff happened and i yeah. i think like it's a little bit sad because, I mean, it's great that fans care, that anyone cares about these shows at that level, that you're reading about them and studying them and everything else. But it also, like, removes a little bit of the kind of awesome mystery of how all this stuff is put together when you know, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> she died because she got a DUI. We didn't, <laughs> someone didn't want to put up with it anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a little bit less fun than, like, knowing that, like, I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. I, I, I mean, it's, again, I, all we were talking about this before that we came out here. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to have people care about what you do. It's incredible, and we do not take it for granted. Really, no one takes it for granted that I know. But that kind of enthusiasm in the world that we live in now, where people know everything about, about everything, is it, it makes it, it makes the experience I would imagine of consuming entertainment a little less fun. Well, it's interesting too, though, and you know. Because we do live in this world, and we can't turn back the wheel, no offense. Um, we <laughs> no offense taken. <laughs> Mike opened the door. Um, you know, we can't unknow this stuff, but I think it does lay bare the deafness of the writers. You know, like, we, we, know, we maybe know that this character is going to be killed off, or this character isn't working out. But it shows, you know, just how good the writers can be when it sort of doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that there's this weird kind of um, dilemma, which is basically, you know, so like on Lost, people would write in and they would sort of say, well, you know, you, were you reading the internet? There's so much in t attention, you know, were you, were you listening to the audience? You know, were you adjusting the show to, you know, what people wanted you to do? And then, then there's other people say, well, you, do you have it all figured out, you know, um, ahead of time? And, you know, you can't really have it both ways, you know? And, and I just don't think creatively it's possible. I mean, I, have, I got this great framed letter as a gift at the end of Lost, which was from George Lucas basically saying, I had no fucking idea what I was doing with Star Wars, you know? I was just figuring it out as I was going along. And I think that that's... And, you know, Stephen King was... We, we did this event with Stephen King, and he was actually very kind of 
adamant that that's how the creative process really works. You know, he doesn't, he never knows where he's going when he starts a book, which is amazing. But I mean, we had some stuff figured out, but you know, you, the part of the process is just you, you, the creative process is not something where it just appears concretely and in its totality, you have to discover things on the way. And the more the time you spend in the world, the more ideas you get, the more complete that, that vision becomes. And so it's, it's impossible to figure everything out. And you, and part of the fun is really just those things. You know, when you, you know, we have like Adewale, Akinue Abaje, he comes down, he's Mr. Echo. He's like awesome in the show, but then he's like, I don't want to be in Hawaii. I don't want to be here. I want to go back to London. I don't like it here. And so, you know, you kill him. <laughs> well, that's the advantage that your show did have over most shows. It's like you when can a kill dude, people. yeah, you can kill people. Like when a dude died, it made sense because there's people that are dying. Well, you've got, a, you've got a cop show now. That's true. But <laughs> it's a comedy, though. I don't think like a, a lot of death is probably warranted on a like, the cop shop <laughs> coming this fall. <laughs> Uh, especially once the show is up and running, it is an organic thing uh, that you know you you need to figure out as much as you get to control. And we've talked about this with you know from everything from Lost to Buffy to the New Girl. I mean, this decision to get Nick and Jessica together this season, um, but we won't talk about it because I want to talk about the OC. Um, but first, if you guys have questions, now's the time to take your spot at this poll. Remember what we talked about. <laughs> 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 what did you wow. talk about? <laughs> yeah, we missed it. Boy. Um, but yeah, come around here and line up. Don't and, mess with uh, Ben. <laughs> keep, keep your questions brief, and um, I'm going to hold the microphone up to you. Please do not touch the microphone. I just want to uh, know what it was like going from the OC to Heroes. That's actually the bit. That's like, that's crazy. I was pretty disoriented on the first day of that writer's room. Um, I, I, yeah, I was, I mean, it, the OC was, uh, it was... I mean, there was a lot of different incarnations over those four seasons, like, yeah. you know, um, and the show, you know, was dipping in popularity and then, you know, the, the fans were so intense and sometimes we would start storylines. I mean, it's a little bit like what you guys are talking about where, you know, we would be doing, uh, we would have a guest star on that it's a love interest of someone and the, the episode would air and, uh, you know, you would see on the internet, like, in all caps, like, I fucking hate this guy. And you're like, well, he's, get ready, because eight episodes of him, you know, like, you've already, the ship has sailed in some ways. And, um, but we did kill a few people. <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, the OC, uh, it was all sort of uh, stories that we would tell from, from our guts and from our high school experiences. And, uh, and then to go on to Heroes, which was also season two, where there was a whole season worth of, um, you know, conspiracies and backstory. And uh, I, I mean, it, it, it was oh, you, jumped, you came on season two? I came on in season two. So I, wow. my head was spinning. I didn't know what was going on. Um, but Can I just say, there's, this is why I love my wife. One of the many reasons is she didn't know, was not a comic book fan at all. And was like, the, 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 you guys are all nerds, and I don't know anything about comic books. And they were like, that's all right. So in the, in the writer's room, like, she was kind of like a test case for like, storylines, where they would like, pitch things out, and she would be like, I am asleep. I don't know what you're talking about. And they were like, okay, interesting. And then they would like, re-pitch it, and she would go, I'm less asleep. Like, that, like I'm less asleep would be, actually became a thing that meant that like, there was something interesting going on in the, in the hero's writer's room. 
but I definitely got like you know in put in charge of episodes because season two of Heroes became much more about conspiracy theories, and it became you know it, season one was much more character driven, which is why I thought I can do this. Right. And then season two became about like you know there's a group of people they're in a lab and you know they're the serum and you know I was like I I don't know what's happening. <laughs> And, um, I mean, I faked my way through it. Like, the first episode I wrote, I was, you know, I, I kind of... Episode 3, we weren't so, so deep into that. But by episode 12, it was like there was, like, a knot of story that you just, like, couldn't even unravel. It was so, it was, it was so complicated. And I was like, I, I have no idea what's going on here. And I, God, I had to I write this that. episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to write this episode that was like, we were going to do this this whole arc and my episode was kicking off the arc of this a virus was going to ravage a town and um and i was the one in charge of like writing in 1974 the virus was put in a vial and it was kept in and i i mean i again had just had no business writing it whatsoever and uh and i mean mike remembers this mm. well uh, we were prepping this episode it was really complicated i was really confused and, there were um, like thousands of hazmat suits en route yeah. to the set. <laughs> and, and then... Well, it was, it was like Friday, and I was like, well, I have a 5 a.m. call in Santa, Clar- Santa Clarita to um, be on set with like 500 extras in hazmat suits and like bubble tents. Like I was in production meetings being like, that bubble tent's not realistic enough. Like I, you know, for all like the virus victims. And I remember being in like, uh, you know, uh, casting and, you know, coming from the OC where everybody was like, it was pretty fluffy and it would be like okay you're gonna see you know mother of a wounded son and like you know these people would come in and be like oh god and, you know burst into tears and walk off and I was like I don't know she seemed really upset is that good I, I don't know anyway so I was stressing out I'm like you know gonna be alone like producing this virus you know way 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 like out in the boonies we were trying to uh, simulate this uh, Texan town and then uh, that night the writer strike happened and the virus just disappeared. It just <laughs> went away. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, it was definitely a learning curve. And I really, you know, I, I came to appreciate just like how much these writers really knew. I mean, they had this whole education that I just, you know, really didn't uh, know anything about. So, uh, it, and, and then I kind of, I stuck around a little bit in that world. And I went, one of the heroes, Co-EP, started the show Kings. And so I went over uh, to that show, but I was definitely like, "Wow, I'm really far from Newport," you know, at, at this point. But it was it was really interesting, you know. You pick something up everywhere you go. Were you um, on the OC going into the fourth season? I was there the whole time. You were, yeah. Uh, do you recall conversations about that fourth season, which I maintain is like <laughs> the best first season of a show ever? Oh, that makes me so um, happy. I love season four, but do you remember, you know, oh, dealing yeah. with the changeover and oh, bringing yeah. in Autumn and all that stuff? Season four was like, it was a great time because I think in, in season three we had done, the show got really dark and, you know, I won't bore you with all the reasons why the show, you know, we would, we were just trying to figure it out. We were trying to keep this engine going. I mean, we had this fish out of water premise that quick, it was gone halfway through season one. So we kept trying to reinvent the show and figure out a tone that would could sustain 25 episodes uh, a year. And season three got really dark and we were all kind of bummed out. Like, we, you know, I'd be writing stuff and going like, oh, not having fun. And then in season four, uh, Stephanie Savage, who's, you know, um, it's just an, is an incredible writer. She sort of 
took over and she said, I, I just, my only thing that I, the only instruction I'm giving you is that you have to write something that either makes you laugh or that, that, that you are excited to write about and don't pitch it if, you're, if those aren't, if that's not happening. And we sort of, uh, the, there was a, it's a really small staff, three or four people, and, and we were all best friends. And so we would just sort of, we would like go watch Project Runway and then we would sort of start breaking a B story while we were there. And it was just, it was fun and it was collaborative and we, we fell in love with Autumn Reeser and I was, uh, it, was, it was a great way to end the run because we just did whatever we wanted and we were excited and I felt like no one was watching at all. But we, we enjoyed Incorrect. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's take some questions from you guys. Hello. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, I know that you, sir, have been doing a lot of adaptations recently between like Six Gun and Bates Motel, um, and I know that's becoming more and more common recently. I was just wondering what you thought, whether you thought it was more difficult or more enjoyable doing the adaptations as opposed to sort of more freewheeling it with your own material. Um, well, in the, in, you know, in the case of The Strain, it's been fantastic because there's this 1,300-page um, roadmap for where the show's going, which is kind of awesome, you know. And it's, there's, you know, Guillermo and Chuck laid out this really terrific story over three novels, which has made it that kind of just a very different writing experience. I've never had the experience of having a roadmap like that. In the case of, this, of you know, The Sixth Gun, there is a comic, but it's... I think the, the show will take on its own life and it will be on sort of a, a different trajectory than the comic story. While it will incorporate elements of that, it will be sort of a process of invention. And in the case of Bates, you know, we really discarded everything except for the house and the motel and the characters. I mean, we loved, Carrie Aaron and I loved this idea that we were going to subvert people's expectations of what Norman and Norma Bates were like. If you watch the original movie, spoiler, like Norma Bates isn't in the movie, she's dead, she's stuffed. And you would think, based on the movie, that she was this evil shrew who berated Norman and drove him crazy. But we thought, well, what if these, you know, what if they actually have a really loving, kind of twisted, close, intimate relationship, but then they care more about each other than anybody else in the world? And that, you know, but they are going to meet a tragic end. And what's great about that is, like, imagine going in and just trying to pitch that to a network, you know, and say, like, <laughs> it's a story about this mother and the son, and it's almost incestuous. And... Like, in a couple of years, he's going to kill her and stuff her, and he's going to become, like, a serial killer, and we're going to just watch this tragic demise. Like, that would not sell. Um, but if you say that it's under the moniker of the Psycho franchise, it's like, thumbs up. Like, let's do that. Um, so that, it kind of gave us license to do a tragedy, which is not a form that you can really go, hey, um, my clients are going to come in and pitch you a tragedy today. Like, you know, no, they don't want that meeting. Um, but it, it's, it really gave us a chance to explore these characters in a way. So we sort of took the psycho moniker, but we were really, we made it contemporary so we could tell our own story. And so that's, I'm not even, yes, it's technically an adaptation, but I don't feel um, like we are doing an adaptation. Um, you guys all talked about how the writers like on your staff bring their own personal experiences in. And as the show goes on and they're working on that show constantly for so many hours, do you have to encourage them to like go out and have more personal experiences? <laughs> you know, or I'm just wondering what... That doesn't happen with us, that's for sure. I mean, we, they, if, with us, like maybe twice a year, um, we'll go out with a sort of specific assignment of... Um, 
you know, what's the what's the worst date you had? You know, so so that just to sort of get maybe a different angle on on the conversation. Um, but we're we're not encouraged to leave the building. <laughs> like, it's good to delve into your past, but stay right here. <laughs> I think it's why it's a good um, example of why it, it you, the experiences people have when they first show up are kind of important because it, if you if the show sticks around, it does kind of become your life. And if if everyone is grew up in the same um, like suburb of of um, you know, Hartford, Connecticut, and went to the same kind of exact, like, public school or whatever, then it's going to be kind of boring. And that's why, again, not to bring this back to Harris Whittles, but Harris Whittles is, like, a weird dirtbag from Houston who, like, was, like, going to strip clubs when he was, like, 11. And that's different from me. So it's, like, it's very valuable. It's why, like, I think there are certain... Um, not this weekend. <laughs> I, it's, I, but it is true. Like it, it's it's hard. It's like you when you add people to the to a writing staff. If people leave the show or something, like you don't you want it. You it's a huge plus if someone is from like if someone walks in and says like you say where are you from and they say well I've, for the last eleven years I've been in Tanzania. It's like great you're hired. I don't even care if yeah. you can write. It's just like it's nice to get some outside perspective on the world. You know. Yeah, I mean we used to do ride-alongs on Nash Bridges. Um, the writers would go up there so. Um, one one year when I first hired Sean Ryan, he went up and did a bunch of ride-alongs. And instead of bringing that stuff to Nash Bridges, he used that to write the script that became The Shield. So fuck that. <laughs> this may sound funny, but serious question for the married couple. Uh, you guys both work on comedies. Do you see each other Monday to Friday at all? Or just on weekends? It's a good question. Um, we go through some pretty tough... like. From September to January, I might I might catch a glimpse of you like, <laughs> on the way to the bathroom at night. On a good day, we're both home to put our kids to bed, which is at like eight. Like on a good day, we're both home and we're both there and we get to see our kids before they go to sleep. On an average night, only one of us is there for that. And on a bad night, neither of us is there. And, the, and there's also like, you know, there was an episode that JJ wrote of New Girl that was at this cabin and it was like a lot of nighttime work. And that means that she's going to the set at, you know, 6 p.m. and coming home at 6 a.m. And so there was like a there was like a three day stretch where I don't think we actually saw each other's faces, which is weird because we live together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it can get really rough. I mean, I I come from the school that believes that very little good work comes out of a comedy writer's room after about nine o'clock. And I and. We never, we don't really, we don't pull all nighters at Parks and Rec. I just, I get too sleepy, and I'm just like, ugh. There's nothing that's so pressing that we can't handle it tomorrow morning. So, I never, I, I tend unless, um, unless I've written or I'm directing an episode that was working at night, I'm, I'm never at work later than like nine thirty or something. And well, New Girl is New is very all nightery. Yeah, yeah, it yeah is. they're sleeping bags like all around the writers' <laughs> room. No joke. So, they do. I mean, Liz Mary Brothers is very much of a night owl. So. Uh, so yeah, I mean, weirdly, even though you're running the show, you kind of get home for me. <laughs> 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 Give you a good break. What are you saying? Sorry. I was saying, does that help the marriage with the break, or do you enjoy the break? I wouldn't say it helps to never see each other. <laughs> Maybe it does. Let's get yes, into it. 
<laughs> Let's talk. Uh, and, and Carlton, you have a hand right now in at least three things that we know of. Uh, are you ever home? Like, how are you even able to be here for two hours? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this isn't actually me. I was hired. What if I I'm just actually, reach out and like, put my hand Ted right Danson. through him? <laughs> uh, no, um, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I've been developing, uh, we were talking about this before, it's just, it's a crazy thing, it's like, I, I was developing three things for like a year and a half, and then they all, you know, most things don't work, so you expect certain failure rate, and I haven't had the experience of, you know, everything sort of coming together at the same time, and we'll see how it works out, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the fate of Six Gun is, but so far I've been managing to do it, and, and I have a very wonderful and very tolerant uh, wife and family. <laughs> Um, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about um, the difference between like developing and pitching a show to a network and the notes you kind of get from a network versus for a cable channel. Wow. Pitched a uh, pilot to a comedy or to Me a neither. cable. This so, is all you, yeah, man. You're on. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, there. I think there's this sort of strange thing that's happened, which is the the, the business is kind of flip-flopped in that I, th- I think cable has become in many ways more desirable than network and you know I had this experience when I was casting six gun of a bunch of actors saying you know we don't we're not interested in doing network shows we only want to do cable shows you know a lot of people don't want to work on 22 episodes a year they want to do 13 episodes and so in, in a weird way cable has become it's it's easier to get people to do your show on cable in terms of the pitching process um you know, I don't know. I think, you know, I, I, there's, there seems to be just a general uh, tolerance in cable for things that are more distinctive and singular. I think the kind of the operating premise in cable is it doesn't have to be everybody's favorite show. It just has to reach a s- certain audience and it has to fervently be those people's favorite show. Whereas I think, you know, the networks are still trying to aggregate big mass audiences. Um, I don't think it's so much network as cable, though. I think it's so much about the specific people at the, each company that you're pitching to, though. You know, really, you know, different people are better than others, you know, in terms of those situations. And I won't say who. <laughs> First, I just want to thank you. Parks and Rec has gotten me through college. The OC got me through high school. Um, Lost might have been why I needed help getting through high school. It was very stressful. Um, <laughs> But my question is for Mike. Um, Jerry's retirement kind of got me wondering, how do you balance making big changes in the show without kind of disrupting it? It's not necessarily like Lost where people are expecting huge surprises. Uh, Our show is always almost getting canceled. (laughs) It's in a constant state of about to be canceled. And that was very... Uh, tough to deal with for a while and then we started to see it as a blessing because we felt like season three we were moved to mid-season and we sort of had this feeling of like all right this might be it and we're just gonna lay out like we're in the in the football wide receiver sense of like run at full speed and jump horizontal to the ground and try to catch a touchdown pass and like do every story we're going to max out our year and just do every story we want to do because if this is how we're going out, we want to like do, you know, we don't, there's no holding back. And then we got picked up for season four, but we were like, oh, all right, this might be it. And we did the same thing. And now it's this weird thing where like a lot of the things that um, seem scary don't seem scary anymore. Like it doesn't seem scary to think about like 
new characters coming in or old characters retiring, and it doesn't seem scary to get characters married and give them kids and all of those things um, that you kind of fret about um, over the course of the show because you want it to be familiar. You want you want the gang at Cheers to be in the same bar drinking the same beers for 11 years. That's the path to success. That's what everyone says. And we were like, screw that. We don't have time for that. And so people's jobs on our show are constantly changing. I mean, at one point we realized that we had forgotten how, like, we had forgotten how many jobs Andy has. <laughs> like, we were like, does he have three? He has three jobs now. Like, and it's because we're just like, screw it. We need to do, we want to do this. We want him to go over here and work with this guy or whatever. So we, it's, it's very liberating. It's, it also creates problems. Like when the show gets picked up, uh, every year, it's like, oh shit! There's there's a lot of weird. Uh, we're juggling a lot of strange balls in the air, and um, and the same will be true if we get picked up for next year. Like we're doing things in our finale this year that are very kind of big and and scary. But it's like, well, whatever. <laughs> if we're lucky enough to get another year, we'll we have the whole summer to figure it out. That's how we feel. What you all talked about, baby writers or new writers or say writers who join a show in like a later season when the room has sort of been around for a while. Are there pitfalls? Are there uh, issues that you see sort of with new writers themselves? And can you? Are there any sort of rookie mistakes that you might? What do you expect of the writers? It may be different on comedy and drama. I don't know. Um, you know, I think it's just looking for sort of a new energy and stuff. I mean, I I really agree that like you know the with the Tanzania analysis, <laughs> analogy, like you're looking for someone to come in and, and infuse the the show with some flavor that isn't there, or come in with some some new experiences. And I'm I think that you know it's part of being on a staff is not just being a good writer. Part of it is being like a person that somebody wants to sit around with for like 12 hours a day and I think sometimes writers kind of don't think about that part of the job as much when they're interviewing for the job it's like you know if showrunners interviewing you they're thinking about okay is this person a good writer do they have good ideas for the show but more importantly like am I really going to want to be seeing his face you know for the 56th hour this this week and so I think you really you know that and it's it's definitely harder when you come into a show, um, you know, because there's kind of I think some hazing that inevitably goes on when you're the the new kid on the block. And I think if you're kind of very, um, you have to walk that fine line between being sort of very resilient and and accepting of that, but also not be a complete pussy, you know. And that's mm-hmm. I think that's the actual um, demarcation we have had. You know, we had. I've had writers that have come on to staff, and when they start getting you know teased or abused, get kind of hostile, and then like people are like, ah, we don't, you know, we don't like them. <laughs> but then you also don't want to just completely roll over. So you have to find that very yeah. careful line. I feel like you just, um, like on, on our show, when we get new people, um, we're, we're always excited to see like, well, what is like, what's the thing that they bring? Cause everybody seems to have one really awesome gift and, you know, someone who might be great in a joke room doesn't really do great in the story room. So, I, I always think it's like, you know, find the thing that you shine at and just make sure that, you know, they see that. Um, and and then, I, I don't know, I think it's just like figure out what's lacking or like what where maybe they need help and, and like jump in right there. I feel like the people who are new on New Girl, um, they kind of takes a while to take, they kind of hang back and get the lay of the land and sort of see what we need and then, Pounce, and it kind of works out, you know. At that point, everyone's kind of used to them, 
And then they uh, they kind of jump in and say like, oh yeah, we're really like lacking in Winston stories. Here's my great Winston story, and everyone was like, awesome, thank you, we're so glad you're here. You know, yeah. uh, very quickly, very quickly, uh, starting with Carlton and coming down this way. What are you watching on television? Is there anything that's getting you excited to make TV? Uh, anything you're talking about with your collaborators? Um, you know, I I. I think you know I like all the shows everybody else likes. It's you know? <laughs> so, okay, you can name them. Um, no, I, I you know Park and Rec is great show. Um, <laughs> you know Game of Thrones, uh, Breaking Bad, Walking Dead. Um, I like Veep. I think that's kind of a fun show. I like the the kind of the attitude. I, I think that's that's good. But you know I I um, you know uh, I watch. Top Chef with my son. He's like such that show. That was kind of also like a lost writer's room show. We always used to talk about that show, so I still mm. kind of have that in my on my T, on my VCR. Do you find yourself? Are there very few of the drama TVR. writers who come through here watch a lot of drama. They tend to watch comedy. It sounds like you watch both. Yeah, I mean, I you know I, I watch. It's hard sometimes because I think it's like a little bit of a busman's holiday. You know, you're making TV, you go home, and then it's hard to like watch things objective, you know, without sort of taking them apart in your brain, you know. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I also am inspired. I mean, I think we're, there's just a lot of really good television being made out there, and I, I find it, you know, there's, there's, it's inspiring to watch other people do good work. Yeah. Mike? Um, yeah, I, I am uh, fond of saying, and I believe this is, true that there's more good tv being made right now than at any moment in history i don't think that's really debatable um there's still this weird thing where when you work in tv people come up to you they go what do you do for a living you say i work in a tv show and they go tv is terrible i don't own a tv you're a moron like they just like attack like it's very weird exactly it still happens it's like you would never go to someone's house and they'd be like, look at this painting I did. You'd be like, that fucking sucks. That's a terrible painting. You would never do that. But for some reason, when you work in TV, people are constantly telling you that they don't own a TV and the TV is terrible. And I used to just go like, meh. But now, like, I, now I like fight because it, I think it's, in, it's indisputable that there's more great television right now. And it stands to reason, right? There's a million channels and like AMC didn't exist 10 years ago for all intents and purposes and now like seven of their shows are the best shows ever made um, and the same is true of FX and um, I mean I mostly watch dramas to that point like I we mostly watch dramas like I'm Game of Thrones Mad Men I we were talking before we came out here about Justified which I think is so good like so good that show is incredible and it's like it's on FX. It's crazy. It didn't. They weren't making. Sh- it was like where they put old X Files episodes like ten years ago, and now there's like five amazing shows on FX. So I, that those are our. I mean, I I would love New Girl even if my wife didn't write on it. I think New Girl is great, and there are comedies I like. I like Veep too, and there's. A, I mean, there's like it's depressing. There's a there's so know, many, many shows like that show The Americans. I haven't watched one episode of The Americans. And everyone's like, that's the best show ever made. I'm like, I'm gonna, we're going to all die with thousands of hours of TV on our DVRs that we'll never watch. Like, it, it's just so sad. And like every, like every day, it's, and now with, with cable, it's, like, it's not like, you used to be able to like isolate it to September. Like September would come, and you'd be like, okay, I'm going to watch these seven shows, and I'll remove four of them and keep going. with. And now it's like every week, it's like the middle of the summer, and like the best show ever made is coming out. 
It's super depressing. Are you with me on this? Yeah. It's super depressing. Well, I mean, me... I, I have to say, Bates Motel, Alan Steppenwall, who's a great critic, has been writing about how great Bates Motel is for a while now, since it started. I, before I came here tonight, I, I mean, we've been DVRing it. I didn't even know he made the show. I didn't know that, because I don't have time to watch. But it's like, and I know I was like, oh, fuck, now Bates Motel, now I gotta watch that. Like, it's so many shows. You do. You've gotta go home right now I know. and watch Bates. Just... There's just so many, there's so many shows that it's like, it's, it's depressing. That's well, the end of my Let me ask on. you this, though. With so much great stuff on, does that put pressure on you as someone who has to create a new great show? Yes, it does. It's very scary. Like, the bar is so high. I mean, if you look back, if you think back when we were kids, what did we watch? Like, on a Tuesday night, you'd watch, like, Growing Pains. Have you guys watched an episode of Growing Pains recently? Like, there were 200 episodes of Growing Pains made, and it was like, when they would slam the door in the house, the whole set would shake back and forth because it was so cheap. They're making for like a dollar an episode, and it was on for nine years, and everyone made a billion dollars. And like, the bar is so high, not just for production value, but for the quality of the writing, for the quality of the acting, the way it's shot, the way everything is put together. The bar is so high that it's, it's incredibly intimidating. And like, you know, on this pilot that we did, we have a really great cast. We got very lucky. It's Andy Samberg and Andre Brower are the two main leads. Andre Brower is one of my favorite actors of all time. And you think, like, wow, you're doing all right. And then you look around, and, like, every show has amazing people. Every, like, that, uh, it's, it's so crazy, the, the level, the, qua- the average quality level of a TV show when we were kids was crap. Like, it was... <laughs> Like, Dukes of Hazard was amazing, <laughs> you know? And every episode of Dukes of Hazard was the same, and they would go off the same jump every time, and it would freeze frame in a way that was clear that the car was going to just crash into the ravine. And then you would come back, and, like, miraculously, a different, clearly different car was like... And you were like, oh, thank God the Dukes of Hazard guys made it across the ravine. That was what counted as an act break, and now... In drama, largely, I think, because of Lost on network TV, like, the stakes, the, the, the bar is so incredibly high for every aspect of TV production that it's very, very intimidating, and I quit. <laughs> Do I follow that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This really makes... It's very scary. I don't know if you feel this, but... I feel this constantly of just like I can't believe there's like 900 shows on every network that are worth watching. No, and, and no, and okay, and then on top of that, like no one watches them live, but they still look at the live numbers right. and like people yeah, are oh, watching that's them. The, that's the worst. So it's like yeah. it's so your ma- incredible amount of television that no one is watching on, and they're trying to sell ads based on ratings that are kind of evaporating, you know. Shrinking every single year, so. and we're so guilty of it too. I mean, every show we watch, we watch yeah. a marathon, and then mm-hmm. when people say like, "Oh, I, I love New Girl, but I'm just going to wait till season two is over and Netflix it," and I'm like, "God damn it!" Like, yeah. can't you, you know? Well, that's the other thing is that everyone's like, "Well, the ratings go down every year, and this is a huge problem." And it's like, "Well, people aren't watching less television; they're watching way more yeah. television in a different way." And like, no one is. Like uh, it's it, until they stop announcing that stupid number that comes out at eight a.m. every day. Like the world is going to be like, where is all the mysterious television viewing going? What are people they're playing more Parcheesi or something every day? It's like no, everyone, everyone on um, in America is watching like seven hours of incredibly high quality television every day, and it's their problem to figure out how to make money from it. Like we're just we're writing it, but like. 
and making it, but like they, they just have to stop announcing that number. It drives me crazy. Yeah. But I think what it does do is, is um, it, it forces writers, or writers are encouraged to just give it all they've got in, in the first few episodes because no one knows if they're going to survive. So we just started watching Scandal. We're on episode four. Like Do you guys we, watch Scandal? Who watches Scandal? We were like, Shonda Rhimes is going for it. Like Every single episode, we're like, I, I kept... Like, I keep saying to him, was that the season finale? He's like, nope, that was episode three. <laughs> episode four. Literally, in the pilot, we'll spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but in the pilot of Scandal, the main character in Scandal makes out with the married president in the Oval Office and then slaps him in the face. <laughs> it's the craziest thing you've ever seen. And then it, and that's like, that's like a three on the, on like, the it's scale. like an episode four, like there's like five people are pregnant with the president's right. baby in episode four. And it's like, and it's, how do you set, you set this feverish pitch of like, of just how how like amazing you need to make every single thing. And by the way, the it's shot, it seems like it's shot in Washington. Every there's like ninety five person cast. Every like every, it's incredible. It's but incredible. Also, it's like five years ago, she you know I'm sure they would have said, well, let's hold off the revelation. You know that she or you know they would have held off. But now there's this kind of kill or be killed attitude. Which is like I don't know if I'm going to see season two. So you just kind of you know you you give it all you've got. And that what's I think what's interesting about it and you know a new girl we were going to not have Nick and Jess get together until you know season three. But we were just like screw it. And then what's cool about it is it it gets you into a whole different territory. And then you're you know forced to to do a, a whole different type of story. So I don't know. I mean there is some sort of like creatively I feel like the pressure that showrunners are under kind of can make for awesome TV, you know? Uh, please give a round of applause to all of our panelists, J.J. Philbin, Mike Shore, and Carlton Hughes. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826LA. Now leaving Nerdist.com.